Romans chapter 12 this morning, Romans 12. Today we bring our teaching series to a close on forgiveness, getting rid of the baggage. And we have the notes available for you there in the bulletin, or you can go right online, parkwaybaptist.org. You'll see the notes digitally. You can add in your personal notes through the message, email that to you, and have that resource for your future study. Now, throughout this series, we have addressed the beautiful truth of God's forgiveness that is extended to those who will follow Him and those who will repent of their sins with a contrite heart. And we have also looked and studied in the biblical truth of the vital command that is given to all of us, that vital command that is given to extend mercy and forgiveness to others. Somebody's ringing when everybody's looking, so we're going to take care of that. Let them know I said hello, by the way. But what we tend to do today in bringing this to a conclusion is that so many times with the idea of extending forgiveness is we excuse ourselves. We find a reason to not truly extend true forgiveness because we say, well, they've never said I'm sorry. And so maybe that reality comes from a variety of different reasons. Maybe that individual has never said they're sorry because they come from a prideful heart, and they never will say they're sorry. They have no intention of ever saying they're sorry to you. Or maybe that comes out of ignorance. Maybe they really don't even know that there is an offense between you and that individual. Maybe it's because of hatred and spite. Maybe they despise you and truly want you to suffer and want you to hurt. Maybe it's simply because they're a child of the devil and they honestly cannot act any different way than their father, the devil. So quit expecting them to act any differently. There are many other reasons that could be the whole basis to why you don't hear them say, I am really sorry. But it would be safe to say that if not all of us, a high majority of us in here have found ourselves to be in a situation where we have had to extend forgiveness to somebody who has never said, I am sorry. And the pain is real. The experiences that you have gone through are brutal and traumatic. Some have endured many years of hurt and fear, and you have haunting memories that you are trying to get rid of. We will not today pretend like these stories don't exist in a group of people like this. We will not just cake over it thinking that if we put enough frosting on top of this, everybody will get a sweet lick and walk out of here thinking it's all going to be fine and okay. Because as we embark on a journey like this, extending forgiveness to somebody who has never said, I am sorry, can bring up a lot of difficult emotions within your heart. It can bring some battles within your mind, even within the next 35 to 40 minutes. Struggles that you will go back and forth. Motives that you will try to look at why they did what they did. And reasoning within your own heart that says, I'm fine and okay by just ignoring it, pretending like it didn't happen, and the last thing I need to do is forgive them. So the battle is going to take place right now. And I have already approached this with much prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to embark on this time together. 
That is you as a follower of Jesus Christ, a believer in His death, His crucifixion, His resurrection, and His ascension, that He gives that forgiveness to all mankind. And so that, if you're a believer, I'm asking for the Holy Spirit to work in your heart today so that all of us will leave with one decision of what will we do with what we have heard. And so it's crucial that we study God's Word to see His guidance of how do we really respond when they don't say, I am sorry. So let's go together to Romans chapter 12, verse number 17. Now, it would be easy if we were able to find a text that said, here is exactly what to do if they don't say, I'm sorry. But the passage that Paul writes here in Romans gives us some really insightful things of how to be distinctly Christian, how to be set apart from worldliness, and how to be taking steps of holiness to be more like Jesus Christ. And so what we read in these verses is all about us being more like Jesus. He says, verse 17, recompense, recompense to no man evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink, for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Today we bring the forgiveness series to a close. What if they don't say, I am sorry? Father, we ask for your guidance this morning as we journey through this text together. We thank you for the richness of Romans 12. We thank you for the responsibility that we as followers of Christ have toward God, you as our Father. And I thank you for the responsibilities that are laid out here now before us and how we are to be distinctly Christian, to be different. And so help us to take those truths and apply them to our lives. And may we be tender and open. I believe the reality is, is that some will struggle here within the next several moments. The harsh realities and memories are flooding their mind and their heart. They're thinking about what the offense has been done to them. They're trying to find the root of the problem, and they're wanting to find revenge and for this vengeance to be had. So we're going to submit ourselves to you this morning and ask you to guide us very tenderly through this text so that we would be willing to be convicted and changed as you would see fit. If there is somebody here today that does not understand this distinctly Christian, this being set apart from the world or being different from the unsaved because they don't have a personal relationship with you, I ask that you would open their hearts today and draw them to yourself. Allow the Holy Spirit to convict them in their heart, give them those uh, feelings and emotions that draw them to a place of decision of where they want Jesus. So guide us in these moments together in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Romans 12 is one of those texts that gives us, as Christians, a place to read and study to discover how we should live our life and how it, was, how it is lived out. It is to be this term that I am using over and over again purposely, distinctly Christian. 
Because before we were saved, there were things about the way that we live that would be clearly identified as someone who was apart from godliness, someone who was worldly and not righteous. But when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we became a new creation, a creature in Jesus Christ. The old man was put off, a renewing of our mind took place, and this putting on of a new way of living. And this putting on of a new way of living is described here in Romans chapter 12. If you want something to study this week, dig in verse by verse to Romans 12. You will find five to seven days of study just in verse 1 and 2. Now, when you come, though, to the passage that we're studying, we're going to see that the transition has happened. The first 11 chapters of Romans has taught us as Christians what God has given us. The Romans road is laid out in chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 10. We find the truths of justification, the free gift of salvation that is offered as this gift to all who will receive. And the transition now happens in chapter 12, and the writing makes this to speak on that which needs to be given back to God. So the Christian life is not all take, take, I've got my certificate that I'm okay and I won't go to hell. Now it's an understanding that says, yes, I've been justified, but my holy living, being set apart from worldliness, is crucial and important. That's why it must be taught, it has to be preached, it must be accountable. There must be steps that we take forward to knowing Christ more and looking more like Him, the one that we wear the name in representing as Christian. So when Paul explains in these five verses that we read, he gives us this supernatural Christian life that is guided and shaped by the Holy Spirit's work. And this Holy Spirit work is in our life and and, and we cannot study this without the Holy Spirit's work. This morning in Discover Parkway class, we talked about our doctrinal statement. And we, we talked about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the role that the Holy Spirit plays as a third part of the Trinity, as an equal part of the Trinity, we cannot shy away from the, the, the reality of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. If some denominations have sabotaged an emotional feeling about the Holy Spirit, we shall snag it back and understand there is wonderful, rich truths to who the Holy Spirit is and what He does in our lives. And so as we study truths, we open ourselves to be taught by the Holy Spirit, to be convicted by the Holy Spirit, to be guided by the Holy Spirit. And so in this passage of verses 17 through 21, how do we respond? What do we do? In verse number 17, recompense no to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. So first of all, never return evil for evil, but always respect what is right. Now, if you're from Polk County, you know our Sheriff Grady Judd, and he always says this, right is right and wrong is never right. And this verse reiterates what has already been said in verse number 14. When you jump back to verse 14, bless them which persecute you and curse not. Hmm. So when he says, bless them that persecute you, bless and curse not, this is an important accumulation of thought for us to take note of. Not only bless and not curse them, but also never move to the verbal attack of someone in an act of revenge. 
And sometimes we disguise that as just speaking the truth, right? And though in our defense of speaking the truth, we're literally verbally attacking that individual. And you may say, well, you don't know how they've wronged me. You don't know what they've done. You don't know how far away from God they are. And he says here, though, not to return evil for evil and certainly not attacking someone in this act of revenge. Some would say, well, the Old Testament text says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth in Exodus 21. Yes, but this pertains clearly to civil justice not to personal revenge. Although we would love to go eye for eye, tooth for tooth, character for character, slander to slander, attack for attack. But this Paul is going to later address in Romans 13 verse number 4 as he is going to give some time and concentrating on the civil responsibility as opposed to our personal responsibility. And, and our personal responsibility is never to return evil for evil, but always respect what is right. So don't focus on the evil in others, but rather focus on the good. It's so easy to focus on the bad. Our human nature wants to highlight the bad of others, even to rejoice with those who weep, right? But remember this passage, even jumping back, this is the text where he says in verse 15, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Yes, extend happiness and joyfulness with those who are joyful, but hurt and weep with those who are weeping. And for some, this is a difficult task. You're talking about blessing in verse 14, blessing them which persecute you. And you know what that word bless there means? It doesn't mean knock them upside the forehead and say, I bless you, and they fall over. And you think that felt really good, giving them a blessing. Blessing them does not mean, well, you should have heard everything I said. I gave them a blessing up one side and down the other. That's not the blessing here. This word bless is actually, it's, it's a call down by prayer on a blessing for them. When you study this word bless, it's asking God to bless them. Well, now that's kind of difficult, isn't it? I mean, not returning evil for evil. Okay, I can, I can digest that and work through that. But now you're telling me that I need to pray for those who persecute me and not curse them. And I need to not only pray for them, but ask for God's blessing on them. And if you can't grab a hold of that truth, listen to the words of Jesus himself on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, he said, But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So giving others the benefit of the doubt is certainly not possible for us to do when we become the judge and jury over their life and motives. Now remember, we're neither perfect nor sinless, and we don't know what's going on in their heart, and so we cannot judge others like we do know them. People we interact with on a daily basis, they have insecurities. Natalie and I were talking the other day, and we were just kind of rehashing about personal experiences with individuals and people, and really even came down to the conclusion where all of us have some type of insecurity within ourselves. And somebody may say, well, I'm the most secure person you'll ever meet. And that may be true, but you still have insecurities that you're functioning through. Doubts, fears. 
you're questioning your motive, you're haunted by your past, you're hoping that things don't go in the direction, in the wrong direction. And so these insecurities in people cause them to struggle. And Paul would write to some very pointed way in, to the church at Thessalonica, and he said, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good. That's the word for moral. He said, both among yourselves and to all men. It's easy for Christians to be able to bless each other. It's easy for us to rejoice with each other. It's easy for us to find ourselves to, to, to be in a fellowship together. But he made clear to the church and said, both among yourselves and to all men. Now, we know that the world around us is the enemy of God. Society wants to cripple the church, if not crush the church. And so we have to be vigilant. And we don't open ourselves up for the attack without being mindful of the defense that God has given us to put in the right place. But we also have to be careful that we're not returning evil for evil. How many Christians are attacking agendas that the society is pushing forward and they attack them with such vile verbal attacks while trying to defend them from God's word. Somebody will be clearly uh, shouting out against the agenda of the world today without sharing the love of Jesus. They want to push the abomination of God and the judgment that is soon to come on them. And though that is clearly laid out in the text and certainly in the scriptures that we will study, yes, that judgment is there. And we serve a holy God who is just, yes. But we also understand that we have been given a command not to return evil for evil, but to still extend that mode or movement of love that is motivated by Jesus Christ. Then 1 Peter 3.8 put it this way, Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Again, he's writing to Christians. Having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful, that's tenderhearted. Be courteous not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, that's slander for slander, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that you are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. Remember in the, in, the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, remember how he addressed to bless those who persecute you? And remember the peacemaker? I think that carries on to verse number 18. He says in verse number 18, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. So strive to be a true peacemaker. The fulfillment of this characteristic is conditional. I believe it is because it partly depends on the attitude and response of the opposite party. You see, peace must always be sought but can never be forced onto somebody. If there is contention in a relationship or with an individual that you're even now thinking, how do I extend forgiveness to them without them saying, I am sorry, you cannot force peace in that relationship, but you can do the very best to live peacefully with all men. The illustration I was thinking of would be that as parents, many of you in here are parents now with activity in your home or you have in the past. And you, you can think literally of times when you tried to force your kids into doing something, but understanding that there was not that change of heart within them that really had the motivation to do it. 
Even within contention, if you've got close siblings who are fighting and arguing and you say, no, you guys hug each other and tell tell them you love them. How many of you have ever done that, right? How many of you have ever had to do that? And so as you, okay, I love you, give me a hug. And as you're hugging, you're like trying to put your knuckle in the back of their spine, hoping that they'll squeal. Or you stomp out of their foot as you give them a hug. Or you say, I love you in such a rude and hateful way. It's a forced peacemaking treaty. And you see, we cannot force a peacemaking treaty with an offending party if they're not willing or wanting that to happen. But we can be responsible for our end. He says here that everything that lies in you live peaceably with all men. So though we're not called to make peace with everyone, we are called to live peaceably with everyone. And sometimes that peaceful endeavor comes by retreat. Maybe at the grocery store you see them coming down aisle three to get some bread and you know you need peanut butter, but you think, I'll come back to aisle three later. That's keeping peace and you're retreating. In your own heart and mind, you have settled the issue, but you know that being in the same place could cause still more frictions to arise. And so you're not going to be like, well, I'm the bigger boy and bigger girl, so I'm just going to stand in front of them, grab my peanut, Peter Pan peanut butter, and see what kind of bread they get when they pick it up. Hmm, we still eat that unhealthy bread? Check out my Peter Pan peanut butter. And so we find ourselves trying so hard to be a peacemaker, but yet agitating at the same time. By definition, peace is between two parties, two individuals, nations, co-workers, neighbors, spouses, siblings, And the raw reality is that peace between two parties can be more difficult than not. Some of you would even uh, give a living testimony to that. Our responsibility is to make sure that our inner desire is genuinely to live peaceably with all men. Quit trying to be contentious. Quit trying to be the cause of conflict. Are you the one that in the office all the drama centers around you? Teenager, are you the cause of unnecessary stress in your home because you can't live peaceably with all men? Sir, does the spirit of your marriage change when you are tired, hungry, or stressed? I think Snickers has put it, hangry would be the way that we live. Ma'am, are you argumentative of everything that someone tries to do? And with kids in our home, we have to be aware that the things we say and the way we respond is being picked up by a next generation, and they think that's just how husbands are supposed to treat their wives, or they think that's how moms are supposed to respond, always questioning what dad's doing or the decisions he's making or tearing down at his character because it makes you feel a little better inside, even slandering the church leadership or your neighbors or somebody that's done something against your family, and all of a sudden you have created and breed a bread, an environment in your home that is so contentious and so negative and always complaining and always attacking until one day you wake up and your teenager starts doing it to you. And you're like, where did things go wrong? Where did the attitude come from? And she says, you taught me very well. And then we're like, ouch. So live peaceably with all men. Christians, are you known by conflict? 
always disagreeing, always questioning decisions that are made by others who are clearly led by the Lord. Can you just find somewhere in your heart to find some trust? Can you find in you to give a benefit of the doubt? Can you find something that is Holy Spirit-led that says, I don't always have to be so contentious or always in conflict. Not every statement out of my mouth with my wife has to be so condescending or attacking. Not everything that I bark to my kids needs to be so sarcastic and underlying. Not every conversation we have after the car line has to be about how terrible the school is or the teachers are or the school board or the neglect by the city and county. See, we're creating these atmospheres full of the opposite of peace and being a peacemaker. And that happens at every age group. And if any of you or if any of the things that we talk about describe us, we need to realize that we're not only harming ourselves, but we're also affecting others that are around us with this lack of peacemaking. Matthew 5, 9, again, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is bold in saying, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And this is why I have a real hard time calling contentious, argumentative, and people who thrive on fighting and disagreements, I have a real hard time calling them a child of God, not because of any opinion of my own, but because of what I see and study by the words of Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Be willing to go to great lengths to build peaceful connections with those who hate and harm you. Verse number 19, he says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So give way for God's vengeance. After reading this verse, we conclude that there are times when we need to simply walk away and leave it to the wrath of God. If you have it within your own heart to be a a person of justice, then you will go and fight it until the very end. Because I will not rest until I see them pay the consequences for their actions. And if that's your heart, you're missing out on just leaving it into the hands of God. Even to the point when I take revenge into mine own hands, I'm stealing from God. Warren Wearsby tells a story about a friend of his who he heard. This friend heard a preacher criticize him over the radio and tell things that were not only unkind and hateful, but also untrue. His friend became very angry. He was planning to fight back when a a godly preacher said to him, don't do it. If you defend yourself, then the Lord can't defend you. So leave it in his hands. His friend followed that wise counsel and the Lord vindicated him. David, in the Psalms, he would write to this direction asking God constantly to defend his reputation and to protect him against the attacks of others. 
in Psalm 43, verse 1, he says, judge me. The word judge there, it's the word for vindicate. It's the word for defending a cause. It's to give legal arguments on the behalf of the accused. And by the way, Jesus Christ is interceding on our behalf before the throne of God. And he stands in for us as the accused. And David wrote, judge me, vindicate me, defend me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For some of us today, that needs to become our battle cry. O God, this week defend me at my office. Would you vindicate me with my family? Would you plead on my behalf as the accused? And would you stand in for me in this way of defending as a cause? Defend me, vindicate me. And in Psalm 35, he wrote the same thing. Judge me, defend me, O Lord, my God according to thy righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them say in their hearts, ah, so would we have it. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Let them be ashamed and brought to confusion together that rejoice at mine hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor that magnify themselves against me. So our prayer is, God, defend me as your child. Go before me. God, you know the slander that I will experience this week. You know the lies that are being said about me. You know how my family attacks me for my my faith and for my following. Uh, You know what I find in my school because I, I go to a school where I'm being attacked constantly either from a professor's teaching point or from classmates who want to ridicule me. Uh, There are tons of examples that we are living in day to day where we need to just be praying, God, defend me, vindicate me, and protect me. He says, avenge not yourselves. And that again takes us back to verse number 14. Bless them that persecute you, bless and curse not. So the one who trusts in God will not think it necessary to avenge themselves. And then in verse 20 and 21, he says, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So last one is overcome evil with good. You know, the ultimate good that overcomes evil is the man, Jesus Christ. We will never be able to overcome evil with good on our own behalf apart from Jesus. And so are you walking in the Holy Spirit? Are you praying constantly? Are, are, you, are you walking in a spirit that gives you the ability and wisdom to make wise decisions? When you look at the New Testament, New Testament man, Paul, uh, he was an enemy of God. He was an adversary of the early church, and yet the power of the gospel changed this man from being a killer to Christians to being a witness of the grace of God. And so he would go from there, from being an enemy of God, a persecutor of the church, to now being a herald, a messenger, a preacher of the good news. And he would tell that. When you look at Paul's story, don't you think there was a lot of offense in his life? Don't you think that when the transformation in his life happened, that the old man was put away, a renewal of the mind and the new creation was taken on? Don't you think he could have been pretty insecure thinking back at the memories 
Maybe in his travels he would find stories of people who suffered at the hands of Paul. And he would think back with flashbacks of three, four years ago when he was a part of persecuting Christians. Maybe the name Stephen would come up often in conversations. The story of Stephen who would share his testimony and would give the gospel clearly that the men hated it so badly and rejected it that they sent him to be martyred. And it was Paul who before his conversion stood there with the nod of official business that said, move forward, kill this Christian named Stephen. And now here's Paul, no longer an enemy of God, but now the messenger of God. And what is he going to do to overcome that? He's going to have to come overcome evil with good. He's going to pursue being a peacemaker. But he's also going to live through a lot of brutal torture. He's going to live through a lot of attacks against him. A few weeks ago, we studied that even somebody outwardly, verbally, and publicly attacked his name and his character. And here's the man, Paul, who encouraged the church at Corinth to issue forgiveness and not to uh, return evil for evil. So the power of the gospel changes. We were enemies of God, but he sent his innocent son Jesus to die in our place so that we could be imputed his righteousness. And we, are dying of thir- we were dying of thirst, but he gave us the living water. We were destitute of righteousness, but he fed us. You know, the gospel tells us of what Jesus did in our place. John three seventeen. for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So Jesus came to offer his life as a ransom for that salvation gift. They say, well, why did he have to give his life on the cross? Why was there a penalty for that sin, because all of mankind had taken on and inherited the sin nature of Adam, and that sin nature caused us to be sinners from the very day that we were born. And now there had to be a redemptive price. There had to be a substitute, somebody who was sinless, and that was only Jesus. The Bible tells us in Romans 6, the wages of our sin is death. So someone, something had to die. And they were so used to offering the lamb, the spotless lamb, all throughout the Old Testament. It was in preparation for the spotless lamb of God who would come to rescue man from his sins. And so Jesus Christ was offered on our behalf. The Bible tells us that God extended his love. He commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10 puts it this way. And if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so your action of being in a church today does not give you eternal life in Jesus Christ. Your action of being baptized in a baptistry and going completely under and coming back up does not give you assurance for your eternal life. For you to give of your offering in the offering plate today and to give above and beyond your means and to be kind to the poor and hopeful and helpful to the fatherless and the widows, for you to be a good, moral, and a decent individual does nothing for your eternal life in Jesus Christ. The Bible plainly tells us For by grace 
are ye saved through faith. And that grace comes from God Himself in giving us something that we do not deserve. And that free gift was given by grace because of faith that believes in Jesus Christ and confesses of our sins. And that's why the Bible can boldly say we can and will be saved. You know, with this mindset, we will do good to our enemies. We will look for the most practical ways that we can help. Because we look at our own lives as an, a before an enemy of God that was transformed by His grace. And no longer do we stand on our prideful pedestal. No longer do we stand as the judge and jury. No longer do we stand with a nose looking down saying, Will you hurt me above and beyond? Now we look at them through the eyes of Jesus and say, Oh God, would you offer them forgiveness? And would they cry out to you for forgiveness? We cannot focus on the evil in the world. We must focus on the good. The temptation is ever increasing to be overcome with evil. Just peruse Facebook. Look at the news headlines and the magazine covers in the grocery store. Our world is fascinated by evil and they are purposely putting it toward us at every turn they can while publicizing it. But the Christian has been called to live on a different level, distinctly Christian. We don't give others what they deserve, but we freely and repeatedly give them what they do not deserve, forgiveness. Look at the verse again. If thine enemy hunger, feed him. All of you in here, I would be willing to feed today. You're not my enemy. Oh, some of us, we have a little conflict between us, I'm sure. There may be something you have against me. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, I'm not holding anything against you. But the truth is, is we're all friends. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're moving in the same direction. So yeah, I could feed you. You would feed me. But if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. It just doesn't make sense to us, really. I mean, when you say enemy, this is the person that has not said, I'm, I'm sorry. This is not the person I've been reconciled with. This is not an individual that I said, hey, let's move past this. I forgive you. Uh, thank you for, uh, for <laughs> saying you're sorry. Thank you for repenting. Let's just move past this. Let's work through this. That's not this individual. This is the enemy. This is the one who despitefully uses you. This is the one who hates you. This is the one who curses you. This is the one who lies about you. This is the one who slanders your name. This is the individual who attacks you at every turn. This is the one who hates you from top to bottom. This is the one who despises you. And he says, if that individual... Thirst, give them drink. If they hunger, give them food. And then he says, for in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Now that's something we can all buy into, right? I mean, throw a pile of hot coals on my enemy's head? You bet, I'll, I'll sign up for that one. But we know that that's not what that means. This is a quote from Proverbs 25, 21 and 22. And the coals on the head referred to a ritual in Egypt which a person showed his repentance by carrying a pan of burning charcoal on his head. And so this is helping rather than cursing our enemy, we may cause them to be at a place of remorse, shame, and repentance because of our kindness. You've heard the phrase, killing them with what? Kindness. Kindness. Killing them with kindness. 
And we can picture some people in our mind right now that said, if you guaranteed I could kill them with my kindness, I will kill them with my kindness. But you know what that means. It means smile. It means contact them frequently. It means point out the positive. Allow them to talk and pray for them regularly. Jeff Carney was here last week, and he and I had plenty of conversation together. He's one of my accountability partners. I was sharing with Jeff a frustration I had with someone and the way that they were treating me. And he simply responded this by saying, are you praying for them regularly? Now, what's they call that? Drop the mic kind of thing. I was like, what? There was no more conversation to be had. I, I, Jeff, I really want to tell you what they're saying about me. I really want to tell you how it affects me and it hurts me. So just shut your trap and listen to me, Jeff. That's what I wanted to say. But he simply just quickly said, are you praying for them? Enough said. In January 1999, Graham Staines and his two sons, Philip, age 10, and Timothy, age 6, they were mobbed by radical Hindus. They were trapped inside their vehicle in India, and they were burned alive. The three charred bodies were recovered, clinging to each other. Graham Staines had spent 34 years serving the people of India in the name of Jesus Christ. He was the director of the leprosy mission in Orissa, and he left behind his widow, Gladys, and their daughter, 13-year-old Esther. Her response as his wife was in every newspaper in India to the glory of God. She said this a few days after the martyrdom of her husband and her two sons, 10 and 6 years old. She said, quote, I have only one message for the people of India. I'm not bitter, neither am I angry. But I have one great desire, that each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, who gave his life for their sins. So let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. Everyone thought for sure she would move back to Australia, but she didn't. She said that God had called them to India and she would not leave. She said, my husband and our children have sacrificed their lives for this nation. India is my home. I hope to be here and continue to serve the needy in the years ahead. Then, perhaps most remarkable of all of this story, the question was asked of their 13-year-old daughter, Esther, and she was asked how she felt about the murder of her dad and her brothers. And this is what the 13-year-old said, I praise the Lord that he found my father worthy to die for him. Wow, that's a God thing. There's no other way to explain it. A mom and a 13-year-old daughter who were able to say, I will not return evil for evil. I will look to be a peacemaker. I will do my very best to live my life to the glory of God, and we will make a difference, even if they never say, I'm sorry. What's your excuse? What will you do with that today?